0: of Oxford and Kantar the marketing insights and consulting company in each episode we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing and hopefully dispel some myths hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
1: Global Thought Leader at Kantar, and I'm delighted to be here today with Mark Ridsen. Mark, you're a professor of marketing. You're a columnist. You're a multi-award winner. But to me, Mark, you seem like a man who's been on a mission to fix marketing. Now, I find that you're very quick at pointing out stuff in general. So whether it's, a, it's, it's about brands that have chosen to stay in Russia or or all those that are flying the rainbow flag rather meaninglessly. And you even point the finger at fellow influencers, urging us all to rebel against hugely popular advice. And in fact, to do the opposite of what they're advising us to do. Now, this is probably the world's longest introduction, but I'm going somewhere with it because my question to you is, I get the feeling that you're not enjoying it unless you create a little bit of tension. Is that right?
2: I mean, you've got to remember, I'm a columnist, right? And people forget that sometimes. That I mean, you've done mini MBA, right? Yeah. It's a. am a different person in that classroom than I am when I'm writing for Marketing Week, right? People who've read my column turn mm-hmm. up expecting it to be more kind of uh, provocative. And, it, and provocation doesn't work that well in the classroom. Do you know what I mean? So I am playing mm-hmm. a bit of a role as a columnist, which is – you know, most marketing columnists are incredibly boring and say the same things every single time. And yeah. so, yeah, I think I am. I'm looking for things that are interesting and hopefully, you know, you, you want to, if you're a columnist, I think you need half the people to agree with you and half the people to disagree with you. But mm-hmm. you can't say something just for the sake of splitting them. You have to believe what you're saying. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're full of shit too. So, yeah, no, I like it. I, look, the thing that drove me Mary, from the beginning was mm-hmm. as a very junior useless professor, I just wanted anyone in marketing to read anything as an academic that I'd written. Right. Mm-hmm. You've got to remember, again, that ninety nine percent of marketing professors in the UK, US, France, everywhere will spend their whole lives writing that no one in marketing will ever read and i just didn't want to be one of those losers that was that was the most important thing to me 25 years ago right so i right. think that's where it all comes from is it's just great to be i'm honored to be read by people that do marketing that's the main goal you know
1: yeah they do do read you um um uh, uh, and, you know, you mentioned that you're different as a teacher, you're different on the course and you're different when you're writing. And I, I you know, I can testify to that. You are you're rather nurturing as a teacher. And I think, yeah. you know, you are you have a, you have an unconventional approach to to teaching. I mean, you uh, you even appear naked in one of the modules. kind, kind of, well, yeah.
2: And Mary, uh, with a body like mine for things like that you, you've got to get it out mary i mean it's what the, yeah you know, it's what yeah. everybody wants you, you can't keep that hidden you know what i'm saying
1: but no no i know what you mean but regardless of the 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 number of items of clothing you're wearing you know what struck me as different is your actual approach to to being a teacher because you keep it on after the course has ended so you keep it on for your alumni group so the um for me, and I can speak for, from personal experience, you've um, you've helped me. You know, I've asked for advice and you've given it to me. Yeah. You've even helped me with the structure of one of the pieces. So I it's a very practical question. I mean, do you, do you do this for everyone? Do you, And what yeah, do you yeah. find the time?
2: Well, it's the only thing I do now. So, yeah, I, I mean, whenever I, when I was a professor in the real world, you know, which I did for a very long time, there's always – I mean, I was trained to be a proper – professor trained to teach case studies and teach MBAs so once you have an MBA that you've taught they are still connection I mean I have connections back to you know London Business School in 1999 someone I was talking to last week um who was asking me something you know and yeah there's a there's a there's a a a bond there that absolutely you retain and I don't see any difference with Mini-MBA. Um, yeah, we're, I'm, I have a couple of conversations a day with, you know, with alumni from from Mini-MBA. And it's great because, you know, you know, I got a message this morning from a woman that went to work for, I don't want to mention her by name because it wouldn't be fair, but she went to work for mm-hmm. one of the large tech companies. I recommended yeah. her on the back of Mini-MBA. She loves it. They love her. And she was saying, as a Muslim woman, it was very interesting. She says, as a Muslim woman. She said it was really, for some reason, she said it was even harder for me to have confidence that I could do this. I just mm. seemed like she seemed like a double outsider. She didn't have a formal training in marketing. She felt as a Muslim woman, she wasn't in the center of things, and she was an outsider. And yet now she's right in the middle of it, and she's kicking goals, you know. And I, it's just the loveliest thing to help people.
1: Um. I've I've been writing about the modern marketing dilemmas and some of these things I've I've explored as well and and a lot of the times obviously I reference you because I find you make sense. Now the the first one was on marketing ROI and um, you don't you don't talk nicely about marketing ROI. Um, no. You call it names. Uh, you say it's stupid. You say it's a silly metric, and then you add mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, so. I would like us to deconstruct this last bit a little bit. So to what degree is attribution wrong?
2: Well, it's it's. I'm deliberately hard on it because it's so dominant in a lot of places, right? That you have to show an ROI or it doesn't make sense. So I'm deliberately rhetorical about it being stupid just mm-hmm. to stop people short, right? And when I've worked with clients, I had a famous meeting with one client where they were banging on and on and on about ROI, And I said to him, I can't stand this anymore. You're going to lose so much money with this ridiculous focus on ROI, Mm -hmm. which got everyone's attention, right? Because you've got to kind of play the game a little bit. There's nothing wrong with ROI for performance marketing. Clearly, it makes perfect. If you're at the bottom of the funnel, if you're investing X amounts in – in a digital tool for three weeks, you can clearly very quickly attribute the success and work out the value of the success versus the cost. And I think ROI is incredibly appropriate. The problem is further up the funnel with the brand building stuff, Mm -hmm. just because we can't show an immediate or even delayed ROI does not mean that it's not giving us a significant impact and return. So just because I can't measure it doesn't mean it isn't there. It's nonsensical at the higher brand level. It's it's perfectly sensible at the performance level. But when you take the expectations of ROI up to the top of the funnel for brand building, it means that you go, well, there's nothing here. Let's put more money into short term. And that's mm-hmm. where it goes. Right? Yeah. It's a half yeah. good measure. It's a half good measure. And it's a half bad measure.
1: mm yes i mean we've been um we've been talking a lot about um the how marketing creates value you know via brands they, um yeah. the, how they create value through brands valuable mental connections and and this is often understated because marketers still with all the evidence that is out there and and we we have put out some stuff still yeah. tend to look at the short term benefits as proof of their work um and and you know with with pride they like, um they showed in the in the boardroom but um we what we would like to do uh continuously and we're on a mission to do that we want to make sure that they use a far wider definition of the value that a brand creates but we'll get to that actually when we talk a little bit about brand z later on but um, let me ask you a little bit about uh brand equity i know you believe in brand equity and um I suppose it, it is actually because I, when I wanted to write about stuff, I wanted to write about stuff that people uh, search for. And it's one of the evergreen topics um, our marketing team told me. So people tend to search for it uh, a lot and uh, because they want to understand what it means. And I suppose in very simple terms, it, it's the combo of mental and physical availability, right? And And the magic that takes place when these two overlap. Uh, For a brand, yeah,
2: you you you. You can look at it that way. I I mean, it's a bit too Ehrenberg Bassian for my taste, but you could go at it that way, right? I think brand brand equity is best defined as the difference between the commodity and the brand. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, if we take, um, you know, I'm trying to think of of a good example. If we take market research, the commodity out of Canta, what's left Mm -hmm. over in the client's mind? Yeah. Yes. And that includes obviously mental availability and awareness, mm-hmm. but it also includes associations and uh, hopefully a price premium and an expectation of performance and so on and so on so that's what that's what brand equity fundamentally means. What have you got over and above the commodity version and many companies don't have anything, and as a result of that, we get price premium, we get better sales, we get you know all the organizational stuff uh, and so on and so on. For me, that's always been the heart of the definition. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Do you you know, what does Coke have over Cola? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. Cinnamon. So and and tell me a little bit about that. The the um you know, there's been a lot of emphasis recently on the future buyers and and the value of 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 that the future buyers will bring. So the we've we've read research from the B2B Institute uh for LinkedIn about their ninety-five to five rule. So so consumers are not in the market to buy right now. I mean, most of them aren't. So mm. the the emphasis, I suppose, for that only, um, should be on mental availability. So the, on on the chance that um, buyers, future buyers, will come to you when um, um, a, a key decision uh, is to be made. When the time is right for them, uh, when they finally enter the category.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. I... I think the team there at the LinkedIn, at the B2B Marketing Institute, they're doing great work, right? I mean, they're doing fantastic work. And this 95%, 5%, I was using it this morning with a client. Mm -hmm. It really helps rhetorically to try and explain to sales-driven tech boys that if 19 out of 20 of your customers aren't buying right now, why are you spending all your time worrying about the sales force? Why don't you put some of your money into building brand to prepare the client for when they do come into the market. So I think it's a brilliant statistic. Whether or not it's true is a different question, but that's mm. not the point, right? Uh, that's B2B. In B2C, clearly the numbers are slightly different. It varies by category. But absolutely, the, 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 you know, it all comes back to the same thing. Sales and marketing are the same thing. The funnel, the top of funnel and bottom funnel are working off the same thing. And we, we tend to dislocate these two things and talk about sales as if it's different from marketing, which in the market it's not, right? Marketing is setting up the sale at the top of the funnel, and sales is is winning the business and getting the repeat business. And, and clearly having a sales force, building brand and awareness and consideration is dumb from a resources point of view. Yeah, marketing is about setting up the sale, building the brand, allowing us to make an easier sale at a higher price point. You know, we'll see in the recession how that plays out, because, again, one of the great fascinating moments of a recession, which we surely now have, is that um, most idiot companies will cut the long of it. And if they if they retain any marketing spend, it will go on short term ROI. It's completely the wrong way around. If you study history, completely the wrong way around. Right. But, you know, the few smart companies that understand you just keep building brands. Because this is a 5, 10, 15 year mission and the recession will only last 12, 16, 18 months will come out in great shape. And that's that we've seen that literally a dozen times across a dozen recessions in the last century. Nobody learns, but we'll see it again. You know, we'll see yeah. it play out over the next two years.
1: Yes. Um, to your point about whether this research is true or not or um, what it's based on, I Uh, We've done a lot of research on that, but for B2C brands and and because we wanted to understand what gets a brand chosen in the end and by consumers. And we've discovered um, that uh, the consumer decision journey is a feedback loop in the sense that, you know, there are three facets, as we say, uh, um, of the consumer decision journey, uh, the experience, equity and activation and equity contributes by far um the largest percentage in 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 the growth uh, yeah. and we, in that equity obviously we talk about brand equity and the future buyers um and predisposing them to your brand is is part of that um, so another another um very um beloved uh, topic of mine um is the the one uh, around distinctiveness and differentiation and i don't i don't want to put uh versus in in there in between but often it is about versus um so it is about i suppose it's the topic of whether brand perceptions influence sales or not and i know you mentioned airman bass institute before and i know um you disagree with them on that uh, so you say there are great benefits um that will come from measuring and, and valuing brand image. So, so just tell me simply, um, does, does a product, do you think, need to be more than a product to break through consumers' expectations of parity and have more yeah. chances of being chosen?
2: Yeah, look, look, so let's rewind back. So what happens during the 70s and 80s is we, go, we get high on differentiation, right? Differentiate or die, right? If you don't mm. differentiate, mm. you will got a business, right? And it gets to a, it gets to a high point in the nineteen nineties where we have love marks and all that. shit. Mm-hmm. And Berenberg Bass, they come in and completely level things out and say, no, 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 this is all completely. We're smoking our own weed here. You know, we, we it's mostly about just coming to mind, being distinctive, standing out at the right moments, et cetera. But by doing that, as Ehrenberg Bass always do, with all this talk of science, let us not forget they're a corporate entity with members. They're a profit-generating organization, not dissimilar from Kantar. They rhetorically push the agenda in the other direction too far, in my opinion. They belittle differentiation as if it's, you know, unique Mm. selling propositions and straw man differentiation. No one believes in that. No one has done in 50 years. You can't own an attribute. You can't have some unique thing. You know, a fool would believe that. What you can have is relative superiority, even when you control for size, on a couple of an important associations that will make the difference. And strategy is about choosing the right ones and doubling down on them and making them clear. That's differentiation, mm-hmm. relative, modern, realistic differentiation.
1: Yeah.
2: I see no reason why you can't have that alongside distinctiveness they don't have to be enemies it's 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 again nonsense and but the idea that most marketers at the moment are, are falling for this nonsense that all brands are perceived to be the same it, it, it's embarrassing you know mm. that's not true for god's sake you know we might be measure able to prove that they're all the same or they're not all the same but just clearly there are certain associations for certain brands which tip us over the edge. It's not just salience. I freely accept that salience is a huge part of it, maybe the bigger part of it for most brands. But I also believe that there is a quotient of this which is based around how is the brand perceived by the consumer. And I see apps, I mean, I worked for LVMH for 15 years in Paris. Mm-hmm. You know, long before Ehrenberg Bass were banging on about distinctive assets and all that, we worked on all of our brands from Louis Vuitton down with the precept that there were two goals. There was brand DNA, le lame de la maison, the position of the brand, right, the source of differentiation, what we stand for. And there were the brand codes, the distinctive brand assets. And, you know, we spent our life, I spent my life working on those brands. So we were clear on what were the, in modern language, the distinctive assets and what was the positioning or DNA. And I, I still think that's the right approach. And I think any brand should have that on a page of paper. This is what we want to communicate. This is our personality, our image, our, our mantra, our purpose. Don't care what you call it, but keep it tight. This is what we want the consumer to think of us, right? This is what, what we stand for. And then these yeah. are the distinctive assets by which we stand out, step forward, become noticed, That, for me, is the central theory. Now, I I love Aaron Bass' work because it's pushed so hard, distinctiveness, which is crucial. Mm -hmm. And I hate the work that has, you know, seven different terminologies for brand positioning, brand values, brand essence, brand this, brand that. It gets in the way. Positioning has become an end in itself. The great brands are the ones that have a single slide, which has four or five things they're positioning on and four or five distinctive assets at most. And they use that to run their show. That's what yeah. great brands look like in my experience, you know? And, and of course it takes true great marketers to define a billion dollar brand in a single slide with five or six words. We don't normally get those people. We get average people who need a slide deck and 400 words and six concepts, you know, simple, you know, complexity and intelligence breeds simplicity. Mm. Uh, And that's something sometimes missing from our industry, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. You can't probably, um, you can't rather probably own anything, not for long uh, anyway, but you can't go beyond those borders of distinctiveness to find product-based, experience-based, emotionally-based differences that will break through those expectations of parity. And and we have found that... um, Brands that actually achieve a differentiated brand positioning can even lower customer price sensitivity from our… Well,
2: that's the the key point, Mary. And again, missing from the Ehrenberg-Bass work. Yeah, if you just look purely at revenues and sales, there's probably stronger arguments. But the minute you get to the long-held propensity for brand equity to reduce price sensitivity, we're in a different world. We're in a different world straight away, Right. And that's probably more important than any other facet of brand equity. Well, I'd say there's two things that brand equity delivers, right? What's the value of brand equity? There are many things. But the two most important are the ability to generate a price, which is spectacularly important if you understand profitability. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is the ability to create brand extensions. You can't extend a brand that has no brand associations, that has no brand equity. And over time, and we're talking 20, 30 years, brand associations open doors into new categories which allow a brand to live on and live forever that's a super important thing as well
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. now you were asked on another podcast about the the greatest challenge for marketers for this year and uh, with confidence always yeah you responded uh yeah. inflation and getting the price right uh, yep. especially time during uh especially now rather during a time of inflation now i'd Um, I don't I don't there was a there was a big chapter it was within the module about uh, pricing and I think there was there was a point in there about you know do do marketers even consider this to be part of their job and um, you know some of them don't and I suppose that that could potentially be the root of the problem Um, but the reality is that um, you are you will have to, in a year like that, and or in the years that will follow, you will have to be um involved in that. You will have to to deal with the pricing and do get it right, but in all likelihood, they will also um have to engage in a pricing war, maybe right if they if they if the whole category does it, if their competitors do it, what chances do they have of um not getting stuck into a pricing war?
2: Well, there's a couple of things, right? So the, the the classic lesson of, well, two things. Yes, we're about to enter a recession which also has inflation. So those are two contradictory forces. It happens occasionally, right? It hasn't happened since the 70s in most markets. There's a real problem coming. Recessions slow things down, typically freeze prices. Economy crunches and slows down. Inflation, everything speeds up. Cost of living goes up. Prices go up, et cetera. So we're going to experience both. So there's a really unique period coming, and and there are a couple of want marketers involved in pricing, even though I would say the majority now are effectively just communications people, right? So the the, the problem we have with marketers in in companies is, and most of them don't realize this, they're only doing eight percent of the marketing role. They're working on advertising and communications and digital comms. Their tactical capabilities don't expand into product or distribution or pricing, and they have no strategic input, right? So mm-hmm. they're effectively less than 10% functional. Yeah. Um the reason that's a shame is because uh if you don't understand value, perceived value brands, etc., you're gonna leave money on the table and get pricing wrong. It's the first reason, right? You're gonna get it, you're gonna underprice which is a classic error of what happens when you price without marketers involved, Mm -hmm. good marketers. And the second thing is, especially when we get to inflation, where we're going to have to increase prices or we're going to go backwards with the same price, there's an art to to changing a price. So in my world, I split pricing up into the price setting activity, Mm -hmm. the price itself, the results from that price setting and then the communication of that price and how we frame and contextualize it. Yeah, There is no doubt that ultimately the most important part of that triptych is the third one, how the price is presented, Yeah, right. how it's framed, contextualized, communicated, presented. That certainly applies to price increases in which if you communicate them correctly, you signal they're coming, you explain In simple terms, why it has to be done. You remind the consumer of the value. You call it a price increase. You don't disguise it or try and slip Mm -hmm. it in around the edges, right? You're much more likely to to get through that price rise in good shape and, and and help the organization to stay profitable. Yeah. The interesting thing about the price war point that you raise is it's pretty clear that once a price war begins, everybody's OK, Um, that like I would imagine, I don't know much about this with actual war. That, you know, the, the challenge is to ensure that the war never breaks out in the first place. So you signal to your competitors, if you ever did drop your price, we'd go lower than you and we could survive longer. Doesn't mean you do that. You've got to find a way of signaling. Don't go there. You know, mm-hmm. if they ever do it in one little limited market. You should go in with both boots and send a very clear signal. We will outlast you and we will out undercut you and we will press the red button. Don't do it again. See what I mean? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
2: But I think the big emphasis on pricing right now is handling price increases with a marketing focus. Yeah. yeah. That, for me, that's the most important thing because we're going to have to do a few of them, you know, and, and, um, handling the price rise is a really significant challenge and and the last thing about price is if you're obsessed with revenues and selling products you don't get it price is the lifeblood of every company right the other thing that's going to happen in a recession right now mary is all these companies that didn't make any money yeah like the Mm -hmm. ubers and eworks right yeah that era is over man that era. there's two things annoy me companies that don't make a profit and companies that think failing is good. Failing is never good. Failing is bad, really bad. Because you know why? Because it's failure. Well, you have to fail to learn. Sure, you do. When there's not a recession, when everyone's got loads of money, we can fail. That time is over, Mary. It's a recession. There'll be no failing and there'll be no more purpose. They'll be making money. It's back in fashion, baby. It's back in fashion. You know what I mean? Suddenly everyone's going to be like, oh, we have to make a profit, right? Because you know what? We're not. We're going to survive otherwise. You know what I mean? So I I think pricing is is back on the agenda big time.
1: Um, (laughs) Now, um, you've always been uh, a supporter of MDF, um, and I know you've been um, a supporter of the Meaningfully Different Framework, because your exact wording in your Bodhism article from a couple of years ago was that, we've been, very polite, very polite way of saying, it. we've been politely proving that the combination of sailings and meaningful difference yeah. is greater than the sum of those two parts. And yes, we've been doing this for years. Um, and you often reference, you do it on the course and uh, you do it in, in podcasts as well, um, Jim Collins um, and his notion of the tyranny yeah. of war and the genius of and, but still... Um, I find that as an industry we, we we tend to do more of the or and less of the end. Is oh, this yeah. an industry thing? Or, or or a human behavior thing? What, oh, what is it? There? It's Why, a, it's,
2: you... a it, it's a limited intelligence thing, right? Oh, and yes. I don't mean necessarily stupid, I just mean people that aren't developed intellectually. You know, the whoever it was, I forget now, is it Bertrand Russell, whoever it is, anyway, the definition of intelligence is holding two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time it's literally the definition of intelligence but we work in an industry where you 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 have to pick distinctiveness or differentiation mm. top of funnel or bottom of funnel do you know what i mean sales or marketing creativity or media it's tiresome right it's tiresome mm. when in reality is as, as and to be fair to Kantar, they've done a brilliant empirical job of saying we don't disagree with coming to mind with, you know with brute awareness but it doesn't explain the full picture and and mm. without undermining that focus on salience saying look meaningful difference also plays a role here and i think the work has been really focused and really good um and doesn't get a lot of criticism it's just kind of ignored if it doesn't fit the salience uber alles argument you know So, yeah, no, I think I have been a big fan of Kantar's on that because I think they've stuck to their guns throughout the last 15 years. And, you know, you've, like me, you've definitely absorbed the Ehrenberg-Bath stuff, which has pushed more salience and system warning. That's great. But you've also stuck to your guns and gone, but also there has to be meaning here. There has to be association on top of the brute salience. And I think that's, it's turning out to be proven over time and I think Kantar's, yeah, it's done a really good, Kantar's been great on that one, for sure.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And you should read our latest stuff about about the role of connections and how marketing creates value for a company by increasing mental and physical, not availability, but connectivity between mm. the brand and its consumers and its stakeholders. It's, 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 it's a great narrative. Um, and we're building on that continuously. I'm going to finish off with a question i asked you uh on the course it was in one of the q a sessions and i asked you about how um not how brands create value for businesses i think i knew that from uh, what we were saying but how uh, vibrant brands can actually stay at the top of their game how can keep their maintain their sharpness and you um you gave me a <laughs> It wasn't funny, but it was a it was a broad answer, but it actually resonated very well with me. You talked mm. about um, healthy paranoia and you said that um, people who never stop um, and to smell the roses um, succeed in that uh, in staying, I suppose, um, relevant and you yeah, even yeah. i don't know if you remember now the example but you and i don't remember it very well but it was an example with sam walton the founder of walmart and yeah. what happened to yeah. him during one of the trips but you can tell me about that and but also what i would like to know is what do we um can a consultant have that can an employee of a company have that healthy paranoia or an agency that is working with a brand you think
2: i've spent my life working for brands that were once very vibrant and then became dusty ironically because they have tried to stay consistent but over time become inconsistent from themselves and that's a you know it's a paradox what happens is brands for for a brand like Cantar to be true to itself and its position it has to do different things in the 30s coming up than it did in the 1990s, right? So Mm -hmm. the paradox is for a brand to remain consistent over time, it has to change. And I think that paranoia is the engine of that change, that you're constantly being street smart, you're constantly seeing the way the world is changing, and you're constantly questioning what does it mean for us to represent this now, and being comfortable with change. And I think that's, again, one of the great lessons. There's only a few brands that have been able to straddle long periods of time, and not become dusty chanel bmw walmart you know that you know they've they've done it for decades and it's very impressive and i think paranoia is at the heart of that
1: success right okay thank you i um i love that answer i think i i have a little bit of that even though i'm working for an agency um and i think Maybe the way I would describe it is um, in what I see as a characteristic for us. We're very, very, very curious. We are always curious. Uh, Mm -hmm. And sometimes curiosity takes you to places where, you know, you need to evolve or change things. It certainly further validates. But if Mm -hmm. you retain that curiosity, um, it doesn't have to come with a sleepless night that maybe healthy paranoia would give you. But um, you're going to get to the same great results.
2: Yeah, that's now fair.
1: i'm okay um i'm gonna see you in september uh online mm-hmm. because i'm joining the mini mba in marketing not in marketing in brand management great um, you will, you and will I so love it
2: you will love it mary i'm telling you it's right I'm up your way. street right up your street
1: thank you i can't i can't wait what to see uh, if I'm going to have as many proud moments as I had the last time. Um, and I say that because um, the la- you you were mentioning, I mean, you're mentioning a number of agencies, but there was a lot of data that I could actually recognize and it was coming from Cantar. Uh, you'll see or
2: even time. more in September. I mean, it's brand stuff, right? So it's right up your yeah. alley. Yeah. But you'll have, I'll be fun. I'll get my entertainment watching you in the simulation. You know, you build a brand plan. And then you run the brand plan in a five-year simulation. We're just finishing it for the April course now. People just lose yeah. their shit over this. So watching you go through that will give me great entertainment for the Do so you uh, do
1: this throughout the course rather than yeah, you, at
2: the very so extent. you build the brand plan week by week. So when we teach distinctive brand assets, you pick the distinctive brand assets for your brand. And gradually you build this brand plan. And then when it's finished, you launch it into the simulated market and your grade is the share price of your company at the end of the five years. It's hard. So, um, yeah, okay. you trust me around about Christmas, you'll be losing your share. much to my entertainment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, great. I mean, you know, if you um, you entertain us, uh, so we should entertain you. Too. Do, That's you right. That's uh, right. do you appear um, semi naked on this one, too?
2: I'm trying to think if there's much naked. No, I tell you what I do. I use standing naked men with harder bodies. You'll see. You'll see. Oh, when okay. the time comes. Okay. I, I say, um, I, I promise everyone it's a harder class than the marketing class. And when the, the naked dudes turn up, they've got much harder bodies than me, which is not. <laughs> so that's okay. that's my promise. Yeah, we get some.
1: Compensate, right.
2: Yeah, we get, We compensate with harder, professional younger bodies. So. Yeah, yeah, there'll be a bit of there's always a lot of nudity. You need nudity in a, in a training program, but not from me this time.
1: Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. It's very late for you. Well, kind of. Um, and, um, uh, and so I thank you even more for that.
2: I'll see you in class in September. Keep up the good work and uh, you. See, see you after the summer. And you too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, see, see you after the summer. Winter. Bye, Mary.
1: Bye.
0: From Said Business School in Kantar. Find more episodes and related content at uk.kantar.com or at sbs.oxford.edu. Thank you.